welcome to another incredibly posh episode of Chatting Tonight. For tonight's episode, I sat down and listened to 15 hours of our Prince Harold. 15 very, very long hours and took notes. And if you know me, And the Everybody from the Office is the worst episode, all from my deep dive into Sea Trip and the Big Four. I take notes in a kind of rambling word association, quasi-therapist way, and this was no different. 33 bloody pages condensed into one seamless episode of hilarity. Hopefully more palatable than Harold's audiobook. As we all know, this book has been covered extensively and some of the things I comment on may probably have been commented on as the French mumble, c'est la vie. There will be overlap, and maybe we should take that as a good thing, as a, if three people think you're an ass, put on a bridle. And I won't mention any names of the people who agree with me or whom I agree with. I like them too much to attach them to this show. But you know who you are. And without further ado, Harold and the Purple Crown. So now the question becomes, what, what do I do? How can I take these extensive notes and do something that's a little different than what's already been done about the book? And how can I take these notes and condense them, or condense them cohesively, I should say? So I think in this instance, and in the interest of our time, and in the interest of our sanity, I'm just going to read exactly what I've written and we'll just get into it like that. And these are just my thoughts that I've written down as the story unfolds. Now, I do start off with minutes into the story because I I found it interesting how quickly we get into certain subject matters. And then as we get further into the book, I move on to chapters of which there are many, many many, many, many chapters, so many chapters that I thought maybe I had inadvertently ingested mushrooms and was hallucinating the amount of chapters. But alas, I was pretty much stone cold sober and this was all real and this was really happening to us. Um, Here we go. Are you ready? Hold on to your underwear, people. So at about a minute, 13 seconds in, we're at 32 missed phone calls regarding Prince Philip's health. 
less than two minutes in, we're talking about shit around Harold that is inauthentic. He's checking his phone religiously because people are making him wait. And remember, people are making him wait. And this is all taking place during Prince Philip's funeral time. He's irritated that people are making him wait, but he had no concern whatsoever. Those 32 missed phone calls over Prince Philip's health. I've also written down beard controversy, question mark, because this is all taking place less than three minutes in. And now he's mentioned mother and he's wondering if maybe she's still, if she wouldn't have married Charles, if she would still be alive, which I found this really interesting because at his advanced age, he should know that even entertaining that thought makes his whole existence moot. So I'm not really understanding what the point of that is. He's also wondering if Wallace and Edward are wondering about them being buried on palace grounds. And I'm just wondering, why is he wondering if they're wondering? Because they are not wondering, Harold. They are not wondering. Less than seven minutes in, we are entertained with a soliloquy regarding pure and radiant light and an Einstein reference. And I'm going to play that for you now. Still mulling their choices or were they nowhere? Thinking nothing. Could there really be nothing after this? Does consciousness like time have a stop? Or maybe I thought just maybe they're here right now next to the fake Gothic ruin or next to me eavesdropping on my thoughts and if so maybe my mother is too the thought of her as always gave me a jolt of hope a burst of energy and a stab of sorrow i missed my mother every day but that day on the verge of that nerve-wracking rendezvous at frogmore i found myself longing for her and i couldn't say just why like so much about her it was hard to put into words Although my mother was a princess named after a goddess, both those terms always felt weak and adequate. People routinely compared her to icons and saints, from Nelson Mandela to Mother Teresa to Joan of Arc. But every such comparison, while lofty and loving, also felt wide of the mark. The most recognizable woman on the planet, one of the most beloved, my mother was simply indescribable. That was the plain truth. And yet, how could someone so far beyond everyday language remain so real, so palpably present, so exquisitely vivid in my mind? How was it possible that I could see her, clear as the swan skimming towards me on that indigo lake? How could I hear her laughter, loud as the songbirds in the bare trees, still? There was so much I didn't remember, because I was so young when she died, but the greater miracle was all that I did. As I'm listening to this, I'm writing, I'm going to tell you Harold's problem right now. His mom is to him all of those things that he said because he's been without her longer than with. And his father and everyone else in his life is not that. They are not a pure and radiant light. They are a mere mortal, you know? They're just this simple, fallible human being that fucks up, that makes mistakes, that is not perfect. And for that, they will never 
be forgiven for being human. But Megan should be careful because she can only be perfect for so long. Because she too is a mere fallible mortal, imperfect. And God help her when he figures that out. So we're still post Philip's funeral, but Harold has made the way that William and Charles look all about himself. They look solemn, and so they could not have possibly looked that way because it's due to grief. It has to be something to do with him. He also talks about fighting to keep his emotions in check, about things not devolving again into another argument. Um, He discusses a trip to Saint-Tropez where everything in his memory is perfect. It's crystal clear. But then he discusses his Frankenstein mind. And I think it's interesting the way that he's talking about himself. Now he's a monster. And I'm going to insert this little kindred spirit quote that he does because I think it's quite telling in I'm sure it was inserted in this to be kind of a prophetic thing but you know you, you'll get it I mean it's not it's not like anything in this book is is fucking slipping to you subliminally okay you're like getting bashed on the head with a fucking safe who got himself exiled then came back and annihilated everything and everyone in sight my distant kin my kindred spirit some would claim as has been commented many times, he describes that barmoral bedroom thing, you know, from his childhood. And he comments, he says he doesn't care. He didn't ask. He acknowledges that William is older, but then makes it about being the heir and spare. And then he does that exhale that is the betrayer of the truth that he's trying to project. And I'm going to insert this exhale. I'm sure that some of these body language experts have talked about that, but it's important to hear that exhale because it really says everything. Though it was definitely that. After making sure we know how much he doesn't care, and then the exhale that betrays all that, after all of that not caring, he goes off. He's a shadow, a support, a plan B, an in-case, a backup, a distraction, a diversion, a body part if necessary. And while I do believe that there were probably people in his life that teased him about that shit to get a rise out of him, I don't believe that that was drilled into his head from birth by like his immediate family members that that was all he was good for i don't believe that i'm sorry he may have believed that but i don't believe that then we have a nice laugh at harold saying he doesn't like posh things we learn that charles always called uh, harold darling boy um, I write, why would Harold's 12-year-old mind immediately go to his mom being chased by paparazzi and that's what caused the crash? I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I just, I don't know. It doesn't ring true necessarily. Then we have this delusion that his mother is still alive, that she's hiding and will send for him soon. And I realize that this is a self-soothing technique on his part, but he then goes to blame his reason for not crying on the ethos of his family that they were not allowed to show emotion. But meanwhile, he's concocted a fantasy in which his mother is still alive. 
you can't weep for the dead while they're alive. And I know that people give Harold shit for being angry at the other people like mourning Diana, but I understand that little 12-year-old's point of view about feeling possessive and feeling that that was his mommy and not their mommy and trying to hold on to that. So I get that and I'm not going to give Harold shit for that. He again refers to it as a disappearance. Um, Here's me shitting myself at sheer number of chapters. Again, we have disappearance. Uh, This is where we come into the matron's part of the story. And I know much has been written about that. But um, I have, speaking of matrons, here in the book talking about themselves calling themselves mums away from mums and that it was odd after mummy's disappearance that Harold suddenly found them hot and the number 13 circled many times and it says my inner Freud just awoke he felt certain he'd marry one Miss Roberts he was going to marry one of his mums away from mums which I don't know if the Freud hairs on the back of your neck aren't standing up. I don't don't even know what to tell you. Hate the way Harry talks. Mouth. M-O-U-F-F. In this instance, we're speaking of candy opal fruits. And it's the wad pronounced wood. Melted. My bloodstream became a frothy cataract of dextrose. And I just want you to close your eyes for a minute. And imagine Harold taking a big fucking gulp out of a icy and saying that his bloodstream became a frothy cataract of dextrose. Right? I'm not buying it either. Okay? I mean, it was good, JR. It's nice, but this is not Harry. At 13, again, mom has disappeared. He, uh, talks about thinking that when his dad took him to South Africa that his dad thought that he was protecting him from the press during this break which I'm going to take as a good thing frankly again we're talking about the disappearance now he's talking about how he appreciated that the teachers asked nothing of him he used the phrase no quarter and I wrote that down specifically because I thought it was interesting Um, at 13 and 14 he's saying he didn't care about his only family's history you know like while he's in school but then he pointedly refers to King Henry, and I, of course, included that quote for you guys at the beginning. At 1314, he's also positing that his family has declared him a non-entity, a spare, three question marks, by the way, on my part. He's, he sounds bitter because there's no special travel arrangements that were made for him. Like, Prince Charles and William always had to fly on separate planes, but in his mind, nobody gave a toss what plane he was on. To which I query, is this one of his needs for PGs, you know, private jets, now? Look, Pa, I'm special. As a personal aside, part of me wishes that you could see this gross display of notes in front of me but as you well know I would never videotape a podcast because it doesn't make sense to me and part of me also wishes that I was cool enough to employ the Joe Rogan 
smoking during the podcast, but I, <laughs> I haven't quite figured that part out yet. So anyway, back to the story, because trust me, we are just starting this uh, barefoot eight kilometer race in the bush here. Um, back to the term disappeared again. We have Harold flouting his disregard of the rules. There was no torture Ludgrove could dish out that would surpass what was going on inside me. Very poignant, Harold. Touching. Harold's talking about Mr. Marsden and ringing the bell trying to get students' attention. And I wrote, I imagine Harold enjoyed watching Mr. Marsden's impotence with the bell. I imagine he found great joy and satiation in watching that. Again, with missing... When he talks about going to Eton at the same time as William, he does that same exhale that he does when referring to them living under the same roof. And when he talks about being at the top of the pyramid in Love Grove and then the bottom of Eton, I wondered what made Harold think that that experience was unique or was he trying to be relatable? Because I think anybody who has gone from, let's say middle school to high school feels that, or from high school to college, it's not a unique emotion for adolescents to feel. But when Harold's writing it, he just sounds like a fucking snot. He didn't care about his family history at Ludgrove, but somehow it was a kick in the balls regarding having to wear the morning tie for Henry VIII when he was at Eton. So how's that now? I've written disorganized thinking at this point. Harold laments having to learn new things. When he's talking about smoking at Eton, he's talking at first as if he didn't smoke. We've seen pics from his time at Eaton smoking, so we know that he did, but then he acquiesces that he did smoke. And I'm wondering if his first instinct is to lie. Then he talks about indulging his rage and that red mist that supposedly comes about and that he didn't feel pain that other boys did. I've put two question marks after that and then a query about maybe wanting the dominatrix later on in life, question mark, question mark, question mark. I tuned out the whole entire chapter on his haircut at Eaton, so if anybody else listened to that, brava. He talks about mummy's alleged accident. At 14, he's talking about smoking cigs, weed, and drinking, and I'm not gonna besmirch him any of that because I was 14 once too. I wasn't at Eaton, but I was at Freddie Park. Harold talks about torturing him because he's royal. And this is regarding his broken thumb. He talks about Charles trying to defend him. And he says, as if my family had any control of these ghouls regarding the press talking about his broken thumb. Which is interesting to me because he acknowledges that his family has no control over the press, but then definitely wants his family to control the press. Okay. He's talking about being naughty, but wanting to be noble. Then he talks about being naughty and blames it as it's a coping mechanism. 
we use the term disappeared. I'm wondering why he cares about the Lion King at 14. This is one of my favorite parts. He talks about liking Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men. Number one, because it's written straightforward. And number two, because it's only 150 pages. <laughs> Which I found really funny because this book is like 400 pages and as we recently found out it was originally an 800 page tomb so that to me is just delicious that he likes Steinbeck's of Mice and Men because it was only 150 pages and this motherfucker never fucking ends I would take 150 pages in a heartbeat we're still working the mummy in hiding narrative at this point. He talks about an edict that basically is no royals are allowed to show affection. No hugs, no kisses, no pats. But earlier he's speaking fondly of his father touching his face until he went to sleep. So what I'm going to presume is that it wasn't that they weren't allowed to show affection, but it was that Harold couldn't dictate when they did. And I think that's the problem right there. We have Harold talking about Baroque architecture of houses. And I'm just wondering, am I supposed to believe that that's Harold's voice? I'm just curious. I, this, I query this several times at whose voice I'm hearing because... I know there's a ghostwriter. I understand a ghostwriter. I just feel like there's some cohesiveness missing. I think that if Harold talks, it's straightforward in a very Steinbeck way. And I'm being really super kind. And I feel this more flowery language. The overuse of adjectives is not Harold's voice. Indigo. Indigo. Indigo, and anyone who's read or heard the book probably should recognize all that bullshit right there. I'm wondering how he's smoking fresh basil, um, just out of curiosity. If any of you have eaten fresh basil, you should be wondering the same thing. He didn't mind the abuse, and this is regarding scrapping with his buds. He talks about the red mist again, kicking, punching, scratching, strangling. I've written the quote, he's mad. I'm wondering if Harry is a bit of a sadist when he's dropping those firecrackers in that pit where his friends supposedly fell. Um, at 15 years old, we're still using disappearance. We're using the term in hiding again. He's querying if he's going, if he's being mean to his mom, if he has fun. And how would he explain anything to her if she returned? And he told Will about these feelings. You said that he had felt like that for a bit. And then William tried to explain to him that there's no way that Diana would leave them, not contact them and make them feel like that. But at this point, Harold's not getting that and she's still disappeared. In 2001, we have this hunting story that this is where that disconnect is again. This hunting story may as well have been gleaned from Hemingway. Um, 
there's an amazing clarity of details at this point that he can recall here. It's adjective after adjective after adjective. He even remembers that he didn't ask for Philip's spaghetti bolognese. He recalls the Queen Mother's outfit in a martini and how he had a cocktail in front of his family for the first time and was hoping for a moment of rebellion that was ignored. And I'm willing to bet you that that pissed Harold off. I wish that I could find a point to the 9-11 chapter other than it being nothing but a blatant attempt to endear American audiences to Harold, but unfortunately, that was my only conclusion. We are now four years post Diana's passing and Harold is still using the words reappear several times and he alludes to the fact that if he got proof that he could properly mourn her we're now talking about Harold knowing that smoking weed was a shit idea but he continued to do it and I just felt that was noteworthy just because it's another um, flagrant disregard of rules that should not apply to Harold. And then we get into some real vitriol towards the editor who discovered that he was doing drugs to what he denies everything and then says for doing basic teenage stuff, which I don't disagree, by the way. Um, and on a personal note, let me just say this. Harold acts like he and his friends were like spies about being really, really slick with him hiding their pot smoking and I just want to say that no teenagers are not slick and they're not cool they think that they are but what they are is they are young and stupid and stoned and so that's my main comment on that is that no you were not slick because if you were so slick if Club H was such a bloody secret how did it get to the ears of this editor and then I've written that, Harold, you're spinning. And Harold is reacting very angrily. He's calling this story uh, libelous. And I'm wondering, did they sue? Because Harold said that he did not go to rehab. That when he went to a rehab, it was for a charity visit. So, and very, very flatly, very, very detached, he says it was a public sacrifice of the spare. And then we get into the real bullshittery of him saying that he's not going to say the editor's name, but then he says it as a fucking anagram. And ugh, it's just a fantastic example of textbook passive-aggressive narc revenge. So we're at the second recorded drug accusation. And even then, everyone is a liar. And then he says something about having a pick of it. But then it's a rumor. But then he admits that he's done coke. And at 17, he says, I lie to myself as easily as I lie to that courtier. And then he says he played the game well. And that the alternative would have been... 10 times worse and I'm thinking to myself the alternative is telling the truth and the truth is worse than a lie 
At this point in Harold's recollections, Charles is asking him what he'd like to do after Eaton. And Harold throws out a couple suggestions, but then talks about disappearing like mommy. And I don't know if anybody else picked up on this little story right here. Or being the Indian prince who wanders from the palace and lays under a banyan tree. Hmm. That he didn't want to become a sloth or shunned at family parties. And I was like smiling and laughing because that's like exactly what he became. But so as I'm writing and that's what he became, these three Nietzsche quotes just kind of like rapid fire came into my brain. And you, you can probably guess, you know, what they are because they're the most common ones. And it was, of course, you know, that he who fights with monsters should look that he himself does not become one, you know, that one. And then when you gaze long into an abyss, the abyss also gazes into you. But the third one was nothing on earth consumes a man more quickly than the passion of resentment. That's just, that's just what popped into my head, like right then when he was talking. Um, now we're at 2003 and he's still using disappearance and in hiding and disappear. But I do have to comment and give a quick shout out to JR for that uh, Arco Van Gogh carnival. <laughs> That was really good, but it's definitely not Harold, but it was really, it was really good. Um, we're at chapter 46 now, and this to me is the whole Harry and Meghan uh, setup story because he's talking about Teague and Mike meeting and how their meeting was, you know, a setup and it was a blind date and he admired that story of how they met. Apropos of nothing that we've heard several different stories of how they've met, but that's besides the point right now. I also found it super disturbing that he continuously refers to himself as spare. And this is especially when he's recounting what other people might have said to him. They might have said, or what they're thinking. It's like doubly damaging because it damages the person that he's talking about because it's not the truth it's Harold's truth about what have might have been said but it's also damaging to Harold because is that how he thinks of himself all the time just as spare that's who he is he's not Harold or Henry or has or H or Spike or it, anybody he's just spare. I don't know. I found it disturbing. Um, we're now at the part where he has gotten hold of the photos of the accident and he is discussing how she looked, um, generally unharmed or still alive. And he talks once again about that red mist and it being a torrent. Um, I found this part a little bit scary too, because he's looking at photos he sees him and he's still nurturing the delusion that she's alive and has just disappeared. He hints now that William was secretly happy that he had to leave the army. This I love. 2007, Harold's saying 
that the paps are as radicalized as those young boys in Iraq. And I just wrote, what? With a bunch of question marks. And he's ranting now about how the tabloids didn't send their own photographers, but they use these PAP agencies, a distinction without a difference, he says. Um, you mean like backgrid, you fucking putts? He calls them thugs and losers. And I, and I want Megan's favorite speed dial PAP to remember that, that you, you're a thug and a loser. It, on a side note, he says full stop a lot. And I can think of a handful of times, and I'm, right now I'm only four hours in. And here's where I write, oh, fuck me. He sings part of your song. Did anyone else comment on this? Jesus. And as we all know now, you have heard it, and it's really... Jesus. He's talking about going through the tunnel in Paris... And I just, all that, I, all that struck me about this is that when he talks of Dodie, he doesn't mention his name. He only says, Mummy's boyfriend. And we're now 11 years after her death, and he's realizing that she's actually dead and here's the part where he tries to fight with his friends that night and then later on the bodyguard and he says once or twice and I'm wondering maybe if it was three four or more again he's talking about sneaking out as an adult and you know why I've written that down we're in chapter nine and it's again with another self-serving beating of the paparazzi. If I die in Afghanistan, at least I'll never see another fake headline. Break out the tiny fucking violins. If you can't see the manipulation in this sentence, I mean, like, I can't help you. All it made me think of was my ex's grandmother who would constantly say, um, if you'll do anything for me before I die, and then dun-dun-dun, there's the request. Um, it's just pure manipulative bullshit right there. He says, I'll never forget that when the guns finally stopped, that it meant silence. To it, I wrote, no shit, Sherlock. That's usually how sounds and silence work. At a certain point um, in part two, as we go through these chapters, I'm just now referring to the UK Army of Conduct in regards to his stories. Um, and the only thing that I really noticed is him commenting about some aspects of it not being glamorous. I like this role, Keeper of the Roz. I like the idea of working closely with Top Guns being the eyes and ears for such highly skilled men and women, their last link to terra firma, their alpha and omega. I was Earth. Much like Harry running eight kilometers in the bush barefoot, we have ran our way all the way up to 2008. Chapter 28 
is the whole Packy comment and his rationalizations, etc., for saying it and how it's not offensive. And when we get to chapter 30, all I'm going to do is play this very short note. Uh, that is all I got out of chapter 30. When he walked into the orange building, I could see in his eyes that he felt as I would have felt in his shoes. Part of him, honestly, wished he'd crashed and burned. Chapter 31 is just listening to glee and vindictiveness in his voice regarding press and arrests. And then he does say red mist again. I wrote that down. Chapter 36 is really just an insert for an accolade that somebody gave him. And then we go on to like chapter 42, which is the infamous penis chapter. Um, although I would tell you this, it seems odd as fuck to me that countless articles were written about infants' penises. Okay? Am I fucking wrong or is that like weird as hell? Anyway, in chapter 42, we are also questioning the universe regarding taking his penis and his brother at the same time. And I want you to note that the penis chapter is almost 14 minutes long. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, chapter 43 is the Elizabeth Arden penis reminiscing chapter. Uh, when he went to that one doctor, I will say what astounded Harold the most was him not having an immediate acknowledgement of who he was. He wants to be free but also wants to be immediately acknowledged and recognized at the same time. So chapters 42, 43, a little bit of 44, it's all penis talk. We're now into 2011, and even chapter 45 talks a little bit about dicks, flaccid cocks to be exact. Two words, Nobody wants to hear, especially from a man who sounds like he's been chewing his own teeth. Although at the end of chapter 45, we do have this wee flex at the end about how mentally strong he is. So I'm in chapter 46, and I'm just wondering how Harold struggles with this dichotomy of always wanting to be known and acknowledged and accoladed for being Diana's son but proclaiming to want none of what the royal family offered him. And, and surely the fact that these things are inextricably connected can't have been lost on him. And that he wouldn't be one, you know, he wouldn't be Diana's son without the royal family. I, I just, I just am pondering that at this point in the book. Um, Harold saying, I insisted on actually planting the tree, covering its roots, giving it water. People treated it as radical, and Harold told them, I just want to make sure the tree will live. The Alpha and Omega again. I don't know. Chapter 47, we have more anger towards the paparazzi, but I'm wondering how do you leap out from under a parked car? And I've written, he enjoys lobbing the insults. You can hear it in his voice. Uh, dumb and dumber, he likes saying it. Um, 
now I want you to picture Harold saying in his everyday life, his wanton desecration of objective facts. This is, there's a whole chapter here that is just to, again, insult the paparazzi. The story is really less than second, secondary because it's really just to insult uh, the paparazzi at this point. Chapter 49, it's become the dodgy blackjack girls are responsible for getting drunk, suggesting the strip pool, and getting his bodyguards in trouble. And at this point, I'm okay in my life never hearing Carpe Diem ever again. At one point, he says, occasional practitioner of magical thinking like me and i write yes occasional at chapter 57 is where he discusses the 25 um but my one question in all of it is that why he felt the need to talk about killing people in the first place you know the guy in the scooter on the 25 and it almost felt like that was to prove something to someone. It was an attack or revenge on someone who's questioned his kills or his experience in the war because it felt less than like a genuine recounting of time there. I don't know. Chapter 59, the only thing I'm going to do is again insert a note that I feel like just says everything. Yes, yes, all that. But also something else they couldn't name. Whatever it was, it seemed frightening or off-putting to Cressida. We agreed, therefore, that this wasn't a reunion. Couldn't be. Can't have a reunion with someone you don't know. Here we are at chapter 60, and again, I'm just wondering, still, who encouraged this use of the word spare to refer to himself over and over again. Was it his own? Was it the ghostwriter? Was it the editor? Was it the publisher? Was it Meg's? Who, who was it? Because I'm like fucking sick of hearing it at this point. And I'm only in chapter 60 of section two. Now I'm supposed to believe that William was jealous of the Invictus Games idea that wasn't even Harry's idea. That it was pure sibling rivalry at this point. And that somehow William should have known that it was game over because he still lived with his father. Chapter 61, we were starting to get into panic attacks, lethargy, fear, fear of cameras, that tail, tail click could set me sideways for a day. Chapter 63 is some haircut story again. Why? The most telling part to me right here is him talking about hating a woman because she parked her car in his mom's old spot and that he condemned her even though he fucking knew it was wrong. Now we're into chapter 65. We're at about 2013. And this is another attack on the press, and this time royal biographers, too. Chapter 68, I'm thinking, would I have enjoyed stories of just Harry's travels and adventures? You know, maybe with photographs? You know, without all that wallowing self-pity strewn throughout? Probably not. 
but I do think that some people would. I think it could have made a really interesting book as opposed to this one. Uh, chapter 73 and 74 are more paparazzi graves. Chapter 78 is this thinly veiled pop at uh, William, Catherine, Charles, and Camilla. The bashing of William and Catherine, though, is disguised as support by disparaging Charles and Camilla as these publicity hounds but the whole thing is an exercise it's an insult to all of them but there's a little bit of a cover-up by disparaging Charles and Camilla just a little bit more just a little bit chapter 80 is the I'm so relatable chapter the I shop at TK Maxx and I use cup bonds now as someone who has worked retail for many many years I'm going to tell you this, and anybody else who has worked in retail will agree with me. This is the absolute stone-cold truth. And it is anybody that enters the store 15 minutes before close, every single person that works there hates your ass. We hate you. We hate you for coming in 15 minutes before the fucking store closes. So I just want... Harold to know that whoever worked that day that he supposedly came in, they hated him. Chapter 81 is, again, another constant referring to him eating over the sink. It's very tiresome. It's a very, like, worn-out, single-person, lonely trope. We've all heard it many different times from many different people telling this same story. At chapter 82, I'm writing, I'm guessing it's a common British saying, mummy, but I'm actually just so sick of hearing it. I am so sick of hearing mummy. Chapter 83, he's talking about therapy not finding one that fits, he doesn't want to take pills, alludes to pot helping his anxiety along with meditation, and using psychedelics as a therapeutic device with there being truth in hallucinogenics. We've got shit on William again, and I'm sorry, but I'm not believing this African thing that this huge continent plagued with problems surely couldn't be split between two brothers i mean come the fuck on first of all do you even hear how that sounds i'm saying it i know what it sounds like can you even fucking imagine even even thinking that shit it's it is fucking absurd i'm sorry and then he says he assisted a surgery now i'm wondering did you assist a surgery or did you observe a surgery because that is a distinction with a huge difference uh and chapter 87 the moon tells him that 2016 is going to be a big year for him the moon told harold 
about Megan. I write, finally at part three, only 700 more chapters to go. Now, I'm going to ask this question now before I even hear it. And why does he go into the alluding of like hot sex with Megan but not with his other flings. It's just, I know that this happens and I'm just wondering why we felt that we had to touch on that in regarding her, which I would think you would want to keep more private being that that's your wife. I don't know. This is just a question I'm positing before I even hear this. So maybe, maybe I'll, maybe I'll eat my own fucking words. Who knows? Okay, so Megan possesses such beauty that it provided him relief from all the chaos in dog ears. She walks in beauty like the night. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. Her beauty wanted him to live. He got more out of that Instagram than you would ever get in your whole life out of Wayne Dyer's Instagram, Tony Robbins, and Oprah's combined, okay? The problem that I'm having with chapter one of part three is that we've heard different stories of how they've met. And there's like really no congruence to these stories, so it's hard to believe which one is the real story and so therefore I personally believe no stories um that's just how my mind works if I if one of these don't make sense right or they keep changing then none of these are true um chapter four is him talking about getting high and watching the cartoon in and out and you know how I feel about grown adults watching cartoons like that and this is from a stoner people okay (laughs) That should fucking tell you something. Chapter six, all I'm thinking is, am I going to be sick? Let me eat, pray, and love on this. And I'm wondering how he recognized the Panama hat from her Instagram, but not the fact that he owned the same fucking one. We have another Lion King reference. And then magically, guys, magically, when they're in Africa... (laughs) They see fucking lions. I mean, what the fuck, dude? Oh my god. They're like totally meant to be because of like lions and Lion King and Lion Store. And then she did the elephants and it all like comes together. Oh my god. So this small spare bear tent was okay. But then we have the upcoming story regarding Nottingham Cottage. Um, so is that true too? We will see. Chapter 7, I've written only 100 more chapters to go. Uh, Chapter 11 is literally a fucking scene out of Sea of Love with Alec Pacino and Ellen Barkin because there is just way too many details in this ridiculous waitress trip that they have made. It's, no. Chapter 12, so I realized that Meg called it a frat house because he's just a shit messy person so there you go so it's now the frat house story makes sense and 
I'm wondering why is he banging on about suits? Seriously, what what is happening? Uh, chapter 12, I'm a bit concerned that he wanted to say I love you after four dates. I'm crying after chapter 13 because there's still four and a half hours left. Um, this chapter on the love of suits is ringing hollow and makes sense why chapter 14 is so short. The end of chapter 15 is pure bullshit, okay? She she didn't know who Andrew was. Shut the fuck up, okay? That That is the biggest crock of shit, and I will tell you why. She knows his daughter, but not who he is. And if you think about the tabloids and the whole toe-sucking gate, okay, they were on the fucking covers of everything at all times, and there is no way that there is an article about Fergie, no matter what she's doing, okay, without mentioning Andrew. That's not how that shit works. So, bullshit, she didn't know who Andrew was. Shut the fuck up in trying to make her relatable. Chapter 16, we have the original speculation that William was taken aback due to William's non-hugging personality. Uh, It becomes that William expected Megs to curtsy to him. Give me a fucking break. And I will say this, the caveat of William being happy for Harold must have really hurt Harold. Chapter 17. I want to know why the fuck he would suggest to Meg to wear her hair down because his dad likes it down. And why would she comply to a man's, like, sexual preference, so to speak? You know, like, what he finds sexy. Because if she was such a feminist, because it's gross to deliberately do something that your boyfriend's dad thinks is sexy okay i'm sorry i think that is disgusting and then there's this little dig at camilla's curiosity or her perceived curiosity maybe and what they're talking about but i am sorry i just think it's so gross that he wants his dad to find megan attractive that is disgusting okay that is fucking disgusting does he want his dad to be jealous of him? I mean, that is fucking gross. Chapter 18 is their relationship is exposed, but what I'm not hearing is what, okay? Because let's reminisce. Her Instagram had contained a bunch of hints, all right, of them being in a relationship prior to her being photographed wearing the H and M initial necklace. Like we're not really ever hearing what happened. That's left out. So so what then? We're now in November of 2016 with the racism claims. It's so egregious, but he, then again, he also says who cares? And then I don't understand why he's going on and on about Doria's CV. And then the divorce and and stuff like that. And then who cares about 
Meg's and a hockey player or Meg's ologist. And my question is, so did the palace try and quash it? But they did nothing at the same time. Uh, Chapter 20 is the admission that Camilla and Catherine were harassed. Um, I have November 2016 fear for her physical safety question mark. I'm not understanding because my hand to God as an American, (laughs) no one really knew who she was or even cared. And I mean that in the best possible way. And then this is all in capital letters. And it says the me again story. Shut up. We know. We know the story. The only shots of her are in front of the Daily Mail headquarters where she got the fucking me again nickname carrying those fucking goddamn whole food bags. Shut up. And then she still made lunch. Shut the fuck up. At chapter 22, it's collapsed twice. Live streaming cameras. Shut the fuck up. Okay. And then this is one of my favorite parts here. Doria has now worked in palliative care now. Okay. And then he says... Like mommy, the last sound these people may have heard would be a click. What the fuck? If you did not read or hear that and say, what in the actual fuck? I mean, if you can't see the crystal pure manipulation in that, I can't help you. I mean, fucking A. So Harold lost his shit. Chapter Chapter 24. Ugh, I hate his voice. Also, is he required by some contract to mention Soho House several times throughout this? Uh, Chapter 25. If he healed that hole, if he patched it up, who would he be? That is a great question. But who would he be? It's a terrific manipulation tool that question right there chapter 26 is about the press again and i appreciate his therapist saying that he's trapped in 1997 i also did pick up on that part with diana overmothered and then disappeared for a bit and i'm going to insert this part right here of him talking about um turning people into animals because you'll you'll see this is exactly what he does when he is speaking about the press but this panda crack always struck me as both acutely perceptive and uniquely barbarous we did live in a zoo but by the same token i knew as a soldier that turning people into animals into non-people is the first step in mistreating them in destroying them. If even a celebrated intellectual could dismiss us as animals, what hope for the man or woman on the street? I gave the therapist an overview of how this dehumanization had played out in the first half of my life. Yes, bad language destroys people, doesn't it, Harold? Chapter 27, do I have an addictive personality? The resounding answer is yes. 
chapter 28, I wrote something and then just scribbled it out. <laughs> so there's that. Um, in chapter 29, we're like August of 2017. And at the end of it, he says it's drip fed to them and they believe it without being aware. And I'm going to tell you that still wasn't aware of her in 2017. Toots, sorry. Uh, September 23rd, 2017 is Toronto IG Games. Just an FYI, okay? Chapter 31, literally wants a comment from the palace over Meg's ripped jeans at Toronto IG. Now, those of us in the know know about Toronto. Wink, wink. Um... Chapter 32 is fucking pointless about asking the queen about marrying Megan. It's like fucking, that was a fucking pointless chapter, seriously. Chapter 33, Harry explaining, uh, Charles saying that there's not enough money to go around. I, um, God, I love that so much. That was, that was delightful. I'm curious as to why Harry believes everyone is so very jealous of Megan. And then I've written, so after Diana, Camilla, and Catherine getting all that attention, Charles couldn't stand another person getting attention. I mean, make that make sense. Chapter 33 is an excuse in Harold's paranoia. Harold saying that he wanted to hug the queen, longed to, but didn't. That feels really unfinished to me, I guess, in a way. Like, if he wanted to do it, why didn't he do it? And why didn't he explain why he didn't do it? Because it just sounds like his problem. Is anyone else as curious as I am as to why there was a rush for the ring? Is it possible that our Toronto Invictus Games theory might hold a little water? They were engaged, per Herald, on November 4th. On chapter 36, I'm not particularly sure why he's discussing Thomas Markle and custody arrangements, and background, etc. Because he doesn't really have any frame of reference except for secondhand stories regarding Thomas Markle. He's never met him. Um, but I want to know what is with the plywood over the windows story. Saying pointedly how he'd done it in LA before, and Harold finishing that chapter with complicated man because I think we all know what he's inferring right here okay that Thomas maybe suffers from some sort of paranoia or maybe Thomas suffers some sort of mental affliction like schizophrenia because we all know the type of people that put shit up at their windows don't we I just don't like it it just gives me a real creepy feeling about that um, Harold is saying that they wanted to get married quickly because of the paparazzi. Which is a little, hmm, takes me right back to Toronto. So far, the clearest thing I've heard him say so far is that the British tabloid 
is not reality. To wit, I wrote, huzzah, Harold, exactly. Harold, if you wanted to elope, you could have, just like you had your three day before the spectacle wedding. Chapter 38 is Lip Gloss Gate. Um, and I'm wondering who it left a little mark on because that was said, but it wasn't said whom the mark was left on. Was the mark left on Megan? Was it left on Catherine? Was it left on Harold? It hurt somebody. And then there's this, there's enough people in Meg's life trying to push her down a lift shaft. I mean, Jesus Christ. Why are we talking about port And then here I'm wondering, is he literally saying that Charles has a crush on Megan? Is he really fucking saying that? Because I'll go right back to how disgusting it is that he wanted her to wear her hair down. Because there's something really fucking weird about that. Sorry. And that she's born to be a princess. Here I'm wondering, if you didn't care about William's opinion on the fucking beard, why did you ask him or even fucking tell him about it? For the love of God, is Harold saying that? Exactly. For the love of fucking God. Who gives a shit? This man is obsessed with fucking hair. And why does Harold even feel the need to state that he stood up to his brother? Is this another, like, fixing of a slight where maybe somebody thinks he's wimpy towards William? I'm not sure. Chapter 43 is a wee, 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 wee chapter. Read Pure Megan. Chapter 44 is a denigrating chapter, leaving out what Angela said to him and only including Harold's response is shady and disingenuous. We have Megan on the floor again. And I'm enjoying how these chapters end like an ellipse, you know, dun, dun, dun. So in chapter 48 is where Harold includes the pre-wedding wedding, you know, just the three of us, which makes me even more pissed at the bullshit elope. We couldn't elope in a Botswana and get married barefoot bullshit. My thoughts at the end of chapter 48, one word, bullshit. Chapter 49 what the fuck? These are, these are my comments. Bullshit. What the fuck? Easter presents with a million fucking question marks after it. Easter presents. Also, I think it should be known that it is not an American tradition to place couples together at dinner parties. Everybody is placed separately to encourage conversation. It's not really that different. Really, what's the biggest difference between, like, some of the words that we use, spellings, and the fact that you use metric and we don't? The point of this whole three-plus-minute chapter just really sounds like a monster gripe fest. Because I'm not understanding why somebody would need to address 100% of bullshit, what would be the point? It seems like an insurmountable task. Why would you even acknowledge it? Chapter 51, my thoughts are, are you fucking kidding me? Th this is what? This is what? I'm not understanding the point. What 
is this. Chapter 53 is the seals singing. And I write, fuck me sideways. He swam naked to the seals. I'm totally dead. I'm dead right now. Chapter 54 is, she didn't look at the tests. Please shut the fuck up. He fell asleep in three minutes. Shut the fuck up. This is absolute pure crap right here because if you're not taking a pregnancy test before you miss your period right when you pee on that stick and I'm sorry for too much information for all you sensitive folks out here but when you pee on the stick if you're pregnant that line starts to turn about as quickly as that control line and I don't believe for a split second that she didn't look You're doing too damn well, my love. The comparison to his mother is like, what to me? And in chapter 57, we have this sacrifice of Camilla again. Here's where I'm wondering, are we really talking about this avocado bullshit? Are you really, we're really fucking discussing this. We're really fucking devoting time to avocado bullshit. We all know exactly why he ended chapter 58 with uppity Megan. Now, I'm not saying that there wasn't an uppity headline about Megan. What I'm saying is that I have never seen a headline that said uppity Megan. But we all know why he ended that little uh, chapter with the ellipse of uppity Megan. Okay. Once again, I'm pointing out the manipulative bullshit so that you can see it because that's fucked up. This, This part in the story right here is really hard for me to talk about because it makes me really fucking angry. Um, it makes me really fucking angry to talk about this. And I know that what I'm going to say might sound controversial and I'm not going to apologize for that because this is how I feel. This is my truth. So we're, and you probably will know where I'm at in the story. So we're at the part with Meg sobbing again and I'm hearing this chapter and I'm fucking telling you that as I'm hearing it, I am getting very angry and I'm getting angry because I am feeling a familiarity to these words like like I've heard them before not from anybody that I know okay but I have heard these phrases before these words before and I'm I have I'm having a hard time talking about this because I I find that what I believe happened to be really sick, demented, manipulative, crazy bullshit that happened. And while I believe that these words were said, if you've listened or read the book, you you know what I'm talking about. I believe that these words were said, okay? But I don't believe that these feelings were felt, 
And that's, to me, what makes it really, really sick, okay? Really sick and demented, and it's unspeakably cruel to do that to somebody. And I just, I'm, I have such a hard time with this because while I would like to believe, not believe that she felt these way, this way, okay? I don't want to believe that. I'm not saying that. I'm not cruel, okay? I'm saying why I would like to believe this story to be true. I believe that it happened. But I don't believe that real feelings were felt. And I, I just can't, I can't get past it, okay, guys? It really makes me sick. And I, it makes me sick even talking about it. Because I don't want to think about people doing shit like that. But that is what I believe about this story. Well, bless our little Piggle Plum hearts. We find out right here in the story that it's Granny and Pa's fault about the letter. We've conveniently left out the part about the five friends sticking out for her in People Magazine and that's how the letter got leaked in the first place, but put that out of your head for now, little darlings. She couldn't sue on her own, but somehow we know that she managed to retain her own attorney in California while she was in the UK. And I'm wondering why we're quoting handwriting experts opinions and why we're justifying the ridiculous stories about her calligraphy. I mean, I really want to know why we just wallow in such fucking minutiae. Out of all the things to feel the need to address, avocados, calligraphy, chapter 62, Dog ball gate. In a fight to rival Fraser and Ali, down goes Harold. Down goes Harold. I'm wondering how Harold even has the temerity at this point in his life to know what his brother is thinking about him. I don't think that Harold is in any position anymore to try and even query as to what somebody might be thinking about him. And what was the name that he was calling him? I'm very curious about that. Harold writes, or says, isn't defending each other the first rule of family? Ask your wife, Harold. Ask your wife. Chapter 64 is a pure wee, 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 wee chapter. And then there's another throwing of Charles and Camilla under the bus. But my favorite line is, grab a tissue, wait, okay. Okay, are you back? Okay. The tears in her eyes glistened like sunshine. Jesus. Two minutes into chapter 65, and all I can say is this. Bullshit. Absolute bullshit. And I think you know what chapter 65 is. And if you haven't read or heard the book, we're in the delivery room with Archie. And what I want to know is this. Why doesn't Harold 
ever talk at all about his impending feelings of being a parent. He has no fears, no qualms. He doesn't even feel the urge to talk to William or his dad about what it's like to be a parent. There's no discussing of any of that. There's no discussing about how he feels about Megan being pregnant or how Megan feels about being pregnant. I just thought these things that weren't included kind of stuck out to me that none of these things are addressed, talked about, not even glossed over, nothing. And he says, a fast one was pulled. And I wrote, a fast one sure was pulled, you fucking scammers. Chapter 66 is about Machiavellian middle-aged white men. What are you, Harold? What are you? And I'm wondering if that's not the same sort of degrading language that earlier he posited about being so detrimental. I don't know. And everything he does with Archie makes him ultimately feel like shit about his mom. And I think that if he ever decides to go back to a real therapist, he should talk about that part. Never occurred to Harold that he could hire his own lawyer. I would have maybe left that embarrassing admission out. Chapter 70, in its whole, from start to finish, is way above Harold's pay grade. So again, we get a kudos to JR on the entirety of chapter 70, because I don't believe one word of that came from Harold's mouth. Chapter 71 is your typical psycho babble bubble bullshit. I've started therapy. I'm changing. I'm different. And nobody likes that. And then we have that veiled threat of still having the text exchange between him and William about that big fight. And I think that's part of what he's uh, referring to when he talks about the shit that he left out of uh, the book that could be in the second book that could maybe might destroy everybody and the monarchy and the whole of Britain and just a little bit of Scotland and then like some pictures will fall off the wall on some houses of Ireland because that's how fucking earth shattering it is. Sorry about that rant. Um, so we use the word escape here, and then I'm breaking out our persecution card, and I'm going to add escape next to the fled, fleeing, flown uh, section of that card. Please add it to yours, too. Uh, under the cover of darkness on a stormy night is uh, said, which was good that was really good i mean it sounded familiar right but it was good it was really good uh telephoto lens aimed like guns at their son and the only reason i wrote that is because that is a beautiful example of some more manipulative language um the end of chapter 73 is purely pathetic he's acting as if his grandmother was being strong-armed and whether this feminist man realizes it or not, a lot of the things that he says are just truly misogynistic. 
chapter 74, we learn that Instagram was the only platform that they had to use, guys. Oh my god, they only had Instagram. I'm so happy there was a whole chapter about it. Chapter 77, they're an existential threat and that they had to be destroyed. Sweet God. Their leaving would collapse the monarchy. I'm feeling like there are some real delusions of grandeur happening in my opinion so thank god thank god we've only got 10 more chapters left and then the epilogue so here's what i found interesting and tell me if i'm wrong we're in february of 2020 archie was born may 6 2019 so in vancouver at less than a year old archie is collecting sticks and rocks Just keep that. Hold that in your head. Chapter 78, I have like zero comment about. Now Archie is at Tyler's and he's walking for the first time. This is where he took his first steps. So how did Archie collect rocks and sticks when they were in Vancouver? Hmm. Chapter 80 is the Diana portrait bullshit because how the fuck does Harold know what a recognition gurgle is from a baby as opposed to a gas gurgle I mean if you're looking to find meaning in everything you will chapter 81 he's talking about the launch of his foundation and I'm wondering how with only 40 minutes left in a 15 hour long story. I have not heard one thing about Travelist, not one. And if you know me, what I'm wondering about specifically is that fucking Mattel money. Just close your eyes and picture Harold sitting at his shared beige dining room table in front of the beige fireplace in the beige dining room? Do you think it is? Furiously scribbling the words after decades of being rigorously and systematically infantilized I was abruptly abandoned and mocked for being immature. Right? I can't picture it either. Five chapters before the end is when we are finally discussing the People Magazine article. Although, listen, to me it's superfluous that it's in here because this is not directly about Harold. I mean, it's about his wife, but it's not directly about Harold. So it's, again, we have a lot of this story not being him and Megan's story, but a lot of this story being just Megan's story. And... We're, we're at a point in the story now where I think I'm just going to have to fucking skip it because it pisses me off about as equally as 
that original story pisses me off. Let me just say this. If you don't want to tell your story, don't tell your story. But don't tell your story and then tell your story three different ways. And then wonder why people question it. And that's all I'm going to say about it. Because otherwise I'm going to go off some fucking crazy ass rant where I sound psychotic. And we'll save that for a whole other episode. We're now discussing corporate partnerships, which I thought was interesting. Um, I don't believe chapter 83, don't spray Gangan. I don't believe it. And now we're into February of 2021 at chapter 84. And I'm thinking, I'm not sure that Harold should really talk about people's sources. And then I have the wreath debacle and that no one cares. Request for interest denied. Guys, 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 guys. Why wouldn't a medium or whatever say that his mother is with you? Why why would a medium not say that? Let's just say that. And then I love this just PT Barnum perfect sentence. The answers will come in time. I mean Jesus fucker, I actually expect a little bit more from my mediums. I don't know about you. Like, I want some real fucking specifics. I could say that, and you would think that I was psychic. Okay. Chapter 86, I've written, as if you don't love love by the press. I mean, is that not why you wanted 100% of these multitude of things addressed so that you would be loved by the press love the love that the press gives you I I don't know he accuses his family of outright complicity with negative stories about the press they say that he's delusional William then calls Harold out about going on Oprah but of course going on Oprah they had no choice he says that they didn't hide anything, but didn't they in that interview? I mean, it's it's that sin of omission bullshit, you know, that's that sort of get out of jail free card. But I didn't, but you did, but you didn't. You didn't believe William, and he saw that on your face. And I'm talking about that sacred comment um, that he talks about. And then I'm going to be honest, I didn't understand the ending of chapter 86. And I was pretty much kind of fucking done after the story of the banyan tree, to be quite fucking honest. Just done. This was like the ultimate in self-indulgent. This break-free bullshit narrative that, that 
comes here at the end. And then I wrote, that is not a spare. How sad that your wife felt the need to assuage your ego at that point in time. That is really fucking sad to me. Okay. And then we have the ending, which is the hummingbird story, which is complete fucking bullshit. And I feel bad for anybody that really believes that that fucking story actually happens because I don't fucking believe that story for a split second. Okay. After spending 15 hours with Harold and then however long this is, like a little bit over an hour discussing Harold, I am fucking exhausted. I don't know how people hang out with him every day. I'm so fucking tired of Harold. I can't even tell you. (sighs) Get it together, Margo. Okay, so to me, this book reads, or in my case, it sounded much like the missive of archetypes. Like it was less of a memoir and more of just the self-rectifying of narratives that have angered Harold his whole entire life. He's rectifying his feelings of feeling less than, and he's rectifying his feelings of hating the press. This is definitely his way to get back at them, and it shows. It's really almost the whole entire point of the book. But out has slipped things better left unwritten, unsaid, or written in paper and burned, than buried. And one of the major issues plaguing this are confirmations of stories claimed to have been planted, of cover-ups, of apparent who really did feel as if he had a darling boy and a boy who never felt darling, but who wanted power and domination. It's a tale as old as time and it's a tale told badly because I wish after hearing it, it all felt clean, you know, pure of heart. But it just feels, I don't know, it feels full of malice, of resentment, of revenge. And stories that should feel beautiful just feel hollow and rehearsed. And I don't know if it's because it's surrounded by all that feeling of, well, malice is the best way to describe it. I don't know, but... I'm I'm fucking exhausted. <laughs> I feel like I need a fucking drink. <laughs> okay, so before I go have a cold beer and a hot shower, and let me translate that for you Brits. Before I go have a hot beer and a cold shower, I just had to add this last little bit after that news article came out where Harold is talking about saving people from themselves. Because I had this whole little section where I was going to talk about some of the disorders that I think that Harold has that aren't being addressed specifically because I personally don't 
know the therapist that he's going to, but I don't think that they're doing a very good job, especially the Tapper one. But that's just my own opine, darlings. So anyway, I think that that article sort of confirms that he does have many of these conditions that I think that he has, which are uh, ODD, ASPD, NPD, TIV, IED, HPD, and PPD. But since we're using all these lovely initials, I did want to give a big shout out and thanks to H&M for using their grassroots choices to get the word out about them like they pledged to do. So a big thank you to CBS, ITV, OK Mag, ABC, and of course, The Colbert Show. Thank you all so much for tuning into this episode of Chatting Tonight. Stay close. On our next episode, we'll be exploring the subject of erotomania, or really what I'm deciding to coin as lesser or benign erotomania. It's going to be a real bunny boiler.